If you have your Bibles, we're going to be continuing our study, our look at the letter uh, of what's called 1 John. It's the first letter that we know of that we have from this guy named John, who lived at the time that Jesus was alive. As a matter of fact, he lived with Jesus, he traveled with Jesus, he talked with Jesus, he ate with Jesus, he probably laughed and wept with Jesus, I'm certain. Uh, and so John knew this Jesus well. Um, he says at the beginning of his letter that he, that he heard him, that he saw him with his own eyes and that he touched him. Uh, and so he's, John is writing this letter and he's writing to people in the middle of really uncertain times. It's uncertain because people have left the church and they're going about saying things that aren't true and, and so people are just confused and they lived in uncertain times anyway because of the Roman government and, and just, just chaos was going on and, and John is writing to them with a specific idea, the specific purpose in mind uh, to reassure them. As a matter of fact, at, at the end, of, I, I, like, I like it when uh, people give me a thesis statement that I can hang on to or, or a purpose statement and he writes at the end of his letter in, in 1 John five thirteen he says, towards the end, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. His goal is to provide for them stability, a, 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 a sure footing on their salvation that they can live out of, they can make decisions, they can, they can know things, they can, they can talk and have a relationship and build community, something that they can stand firm on that will not change in a world full of things that change constantly. Right? So he's writing to them, he says, so that they can be certain. God wants, John wants, and, and God, through John, wants us to be profoundly confident that we have passed from death to life. He writes this, John says this, uh, at 3.14, he says this, he says, um, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He says, there's a way to know that we've passed from death to life. And he's getting this from Jesus. Jesus says, uh, back in John, uh, in John 5, yeah, 524, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Judgment is behind us. Death is behind us. Spiritual death is behind us. We will die physically, but spiritual death is behind us. Most of us will anyway, unless Jesus comes before then. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon and very soon, please. Uh, but there, we have a new life in Jesus Christ uh, that cannot be taken away. It cannot perish. It will not wear out. It is eternal. It is life, the quality of God's life. And so John wants people to, the people that he's writing to, the people that he loves, the people living in uncertain times, to be certain of this. Today we arrive at 1 John 3. And 1 through 3, we did last week. Let me read it real quick. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him, beloved. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he he is pure. Now, verses four through 10, we're gonna continue there today. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
You know that he appeared to take away the sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteousness. And he, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Everybody feeling confident in your salvation? Uh, Here's the thing. Uh, Depending on how you grew up, maybe some wiring, uh, I can tell you for me and how I am, uh, this is, I think the right word might be triggering, right? This upsets me deeply, right? Like this, this passage bothers me like it, like it, if I wake up in the middle of the night with a verse in my head, unfortunately, it's probably this, something like this, some version of this. Uh, Lindsay, uh, when she, we're talking about worship and preparing worship uh, some time ago, and I told her it's a good thing that it's not up to me, right? It's not up to me what we do, uh, because if it was just up to me and just left to my own devices, I would accidentally make every single song a confession song. Like, it just would be just confession after confession after confession. I just, I need it. Like, I just, it feels right to my soul that I just need to constantly repent. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a sense in which the Christian life is a sense, is a life of repentance, but it is also a life of victory over sin, right? And so I just kind of default to one way, which is beautiful that the Bible is corrective to everybody, right? So I just default that way, knowing my own heart's constant turn inward. So, before I go any further, I want to start. There's, there's three ways to mishandle this text, right? This passage, right? First one is to just go, that's kind of hard. I don't like it. Let's move on. We'll have none of that here. The second way to mishandle this text is to take it out of context, to read just this, not surrounded by everything else John is saying, and take it to mean that John is proclaiming some type of perfectionism. You must be perfect, and if you're not perfect, then you're not of God. That's perfectionism, and that's not what John is teaching. And here, I can prove it to you. Let me, let me prove it to you that that's not what John is saying. I can prove it to you because John rejects all ideas of perfectionism. Uh, just a page before, uh, 1.8, he says this. Uh, no, it's 1.18. No, 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 it's 1.8. First John, I'll allow him. First John 1.8. I was looking at two, sorry. Here he goes. Uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He, he rejects the idea that there's perfectionism. And it's not just one place. Look at 2.1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's writing that we might not sin, but he knows that we're going to. He is rejecting perfectionism. So this passage is not a passage calling you to some level of perfectionism. And if you sin, then you can know that you're a child of the devil. That's, that's not what's happening here. So it would be wrong to read this text with great despair. 
That's how I read it. I hear it and I'm just like, oh no, I'm not good enough. I knew I wasn't good enough, oh no. That's my reaction, but that would be wrong. Another way to read this would be flippantly. To read it wrongly, would be flippantly. Yeah, 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 I'm a sinner. Jesus took care of that, I'm good. To dismiss the seriousness of what John seems to be saying. That would be another way for us to misread the text. It speaks in generalizations, yes, but he's saying something incredibly important. He's talking about the seriousness of sin. And what he says sin is, he says sin is lawlessness. There's other places in the Bible that talk about sin, uh, and there's a bunch of different words that we just kind of all get translated sin, which is, is, which is fine. Uh, but in the Bible, the Bible talks about missing the mark as being sin, right? We're, not, we're just missing the mark, not, not, not hitting the level, right? Or uh, being uh, off target, being... Um, being nowhere aimed at things that aren't just and right. That's a good way of putting it. All those words exist in the Bible for sin. And John uses this very helpful term, I think, and just sums it all up as lawlessness. There is in sin, or what sin is, is a violation of God's moral law. Like God has a law and a rule, and sin is a violation of that. And it's declaring at some level uh, or rejecting his rule or declaring rebellion against his idea, his God's will. It is a reaction against what God has called us to do. Uh, if we co- and we come into the world this way. If you don't believe me, uh, I have to assume you're not volunteering in kids, so you should take out your app and sign up right now. If you volunteered in kids, you would know. We just come into this world this way. Parents aren't out there teaching their kids to be selfish. They came into the world that way. Kids aren't, parents aren't out there teaching them to not share. They just came into the world that way. They come in lawless little beings that we have to raise up. We come into this world with this natural bent, rejecting God's rule in favor of our own or something else. And John says that's lawlessness. That's, that's what sin is. And it I think that we live in a time, I don't know why it is, maybe it's just me, but we seem to, we like to take sin and hide it in other neat little containers, right? Uh, Like tiny little, uh, yes, I make mistakes, right? I make mistakes. This is error in judgment, me screaming at you like that, right? Like we make mistakes or we kind of attribute it to personality, like, I'm sorry that I bulldozed you, ran over you, and ignored your feelings altogether. I'm an Enneagram one. It's what we do. Like, it's not that I'm a jerk and I'm a sinner and selfish and just going to do my own thing. It's that I'm an Enneagram one. We hide sometimes our sin in personality types. Or, hey, you know what? It's just what I'm like. This is, this is what I am like. And so I think that we, but we do great damage. We, we put us, even though we don't love the idea in the modern world, the idea of sin, I think we're really missing something by not holding on to this idea. As a matter of fact, psychologists have written, I've read um, a secular psychologists who say, yeah, when we got rid of the idea of sin, we kind of, we don't know what to do now with the shame that we feel anyway. Not that it's just a helpful idea, but a reality, an actual violation against God's law. And when we downplay and minimize sin and we kind of reduce it to something else, what we end up doing is just letting it stick around and fester. 
We don't deal with it properly. We don't identify for what it is and then go and deal with it because we just don't think it's sin. It's just what I'm like. It's a quirk. I'm not that bad. And the Bible has a completely different idea. We shouldn't mask sin. And here's the deal. I think it's a great thing. It's a very good thing that the Bible takes sin so seriously. Sin is serious. God takes it seriously. And that's good news because we want the world to be a certain way, don't we? I mean, don't we want the world to be a place that's full of peace, a world that is full of love, and a world that is full of justice? That, that's what we want. We want the world to be like that. We want, a world that's, we want God to come and deal with sin because we want justice. There, there are things that are wrong that must be righted. There are things that have been done that must be fixed. We want a just God who deals with this. The problem is, is if we want a just God, a just God who deals with sin will also have to deal with me. We want this world this way. We want this world... God to come and make this world because there's something inside of us, all human beings, that compels us to be selfish, to turn in on ourselves, to be, quite honestly, according to the Bible, evil. There's parts of our heart that run that way. And the biblical idea of evil is something that ruins things. It ruins and it pollutes. It pollutes our lives, our thinking, our heart, our relationships, the world. In the Old Testament, you read some of these weird things. I always thought it was super weird. You read in the Old Testament like about all these things that they would do. They would, act, they would take a sacrifice and they would kill the sacrifice that stood in their place and they would take, the priest would take the blood. There's all these instructions about taking the blood and sprinkling it and where would you sprinkle it? You know, and where you're supposed to sprinkle it and how you're supposed to sprinkle it. And that's just to me like the weirdest thing in the world. I'm super glad we don't do that anymore, right? But the idea was this, that in the blood was life and it was cleansing the evil and the death that was brought by sin. It was this visualization that God is purifying the places that we've corrupted. We want God to do this because this lawlessness causes this evil. It causes harm to others. It causes harm in the world and it causes harm to us. It's not good for us to live with anger and all of these other things. And so we want God to deal with this, but how does God deal with this sin and evil without destroying me as well? And so this is what he says. He says that we know that we can't be a part of this. We can't have this evil and it can't abide in us. And it says this, it says, um, the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We know that he came, appeared to take away sins and that in him there is no sin. He came to take away sin and in him there is no sin. He came to deal with the works of the devil He came to deal with this lawlessness. How does he do that without breaking me? There's all these verses that point to this beautiful, beautiful reality that he is going to take this sin upon himself. That's what this says. Isaiah talks about this king who will come, but he's not going to be a king like other kings. He's going to be a king that is a servant king, a king that lays down his life and serves. Uh, Isaiah 53 says this, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There was this promised one who would come that would take our sin on himself. Peter writes this, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. The author of Hebrews says, so in Christ, we've been offered, uh, offered once to bear the sins of many. He'll appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. So the way that God dealt with sin in me without destroying me, the, God, the way that God deals with evil and the brokenness in the world without destroying us is that Jesus takes on the sin and the consequences on himself. This is the gospel, that we have salvation in Jesus, that he is the propitiation, one of my favorite words, if you're collecting $5 words, write that one down, the substitute, the one who stood in the place of us. And so, his death pays the price, his blood representing his life washes away the vandalism of evil in us. It is it. It is the only way. And that's what it says. This passage says there's only two ways to live. There's a way to live unto God as a child of God, and then there's the children of the devil. Verse 10 says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The world is divided in biblical terms into two categories, the children of God and the children of the devil. That's it. It's those who are children of God who are pursuing that, who are being pursued, who live life this way, who have given themselves to God, and then there's everybody else. In biblical terms, that's the only two ways. There's the way where you follow God and there's the way that you follow the devil. Uh, The children of the devil are those, according to this, who practice sinning. One is a lie and there is no truth in it and one is true and there is no lie in it. One is full of life and one is full of death. One is full of, one is consuming. The lie consumes you. And the other lays down his life so that you may have life. First of two C.S. Lewis quotes. C.S. Lewis wrote this book. I love it so much. Uh, It's called Screwtape Letters. And the Screwtape Letters is interesting because it's uh, written from the perspective of a demon. Right? It's two demons writing letters back and forth. Or actually one, the older demon writing to the the demon that he's training about this man who's become a Christian. So, so when he talks about God, it talks about like talk, it refers to him as some, something that's hated, and talks about their Lord as the devil. So it's interesting. It's difficult to read sometimes, but it's super, super fascinating. This is what he wrote in one of the letters. It's so helpful. This is uh, one demon writing to another, an older demon writing to the younger. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love, God's love, for men. And his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. (laughs) He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and will be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below, the devil, has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy, God, wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. These are the two choices, being consumed or being filled with life by God. These are the two ways that the Bible sees us being able to live. One that consumes and the other that pours out life. 
So John concludes then that this means that followers of followers that are the children of God cannot and must not sin. So that leaves me in this difficult place, right? It leaves me in this difficult place of this dual reality that I know that I am a child of God and I long for this assurance that I have in Christ because of what Jesus has done on my behalf, what Jesus has done for me and through faith having eternal life and also the reality, the matching, or the, 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 the also true, that I'm a sinner. I have to live with this conflict. How do I make sense of this conflict between the reality of the new birth on one hand and ongoing sin on the other? So what's happening in this book? To understand, we need to understand what's going on. So John is dealing with a heresy. He says in verse 7, I do not want you to be Confused. I don't want you to be tricked. I don't want you to be led astray. So there's people out there trying to lead the people astray. And here's what we know about the teaching that John was trying to undermine, John was preaching against. We know this, that they were denying the humanity of Jesus. Jesus wasn't really human, right? So they had come to the conclusion, once being a part of the church, had come to the conclusion that Jesus wasn't really human. And here's why they said that Jesus wasn't really human. Uh, because the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. If the spirit is good and the flesh is bad, and you can understand why they would think that, right? I mean, haven't you ever wanted to be good in your heart and done bad anyway? Right? And so you, you kind of understand why they would come to this conclusion. But they had this philosophical understanding and they claimed to have reached this higher spiritual plane where they understood that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. And so that, that, that conclu- and they concluded that Jesus was not, could not have been flesh. They wanted to hang on to the idea of Jesus, the good teaching and all the spiritual stuff and the child of God stuff, but do away with the whole flesh part. That's why John opens his letter saying, I laid my head, I, I touched him. Like, no, he was real. But that kind of thinking, that kind of understanding, of course, has consequences in how you live. So these people that had said these things that were, trying to con- that were confusing the people that John's writing to, these people had said this. They were saying things like, and it's clear from how John's writing that this is what was going on, and we have other documents that, that, that support this. It's clear that what they were saying was, since the flesh is bad and the spirit is good, I have Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, the made-up Jesus, not the real one that John's talking about. I have Jesus, and I have my, my flesh. It doesn't really matter what I do in the flesh, only that my spirit is good and saved. They disconnected the body and the soul. I can be good in my soul, and it doesn't really matter. Since the flesh is bad anyway, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter what I do. I can go out and do whatever I want. I can participate in, in ritualistic worship of, of pagan gods in the way they do, because it doesn't really matter what I do, with my, which is the thing that they did with my body. I can go to these parties and these incredible things that, that, that's going on, that just all kind of debauchery happens, and it doesn't really matter. The flesh is evil. It doesn't matter what I do with my flesh. It cannot corrupt my soul. I'm a child of God because I know Jesus. And John's saying, you don't know Jesus. That's not at all how that works at all. John hears what they're saying and reads what they're saying, and he responds this way to them. What are you, high? He's like, are you you crazy? Are you insane? Have you lost your mind? It doesn't work that way. Jesus was real, and it it matters what you do with your body. How can you think that it's not? Imagine this. Imagine this. I'm going to do, this is my most southern, uh, southern illustration ever. Uh, but stick with me. It's not going to be bad as you think it is. Uh, imagine this. Imagine that you uh, are an Alabama fan. 
and you encounter another person. You begin to have conversations. It's the state of Alabama, so they revolve around football, maybe. And you discover this person, too, professes to be an Alabama fan. And you have Alabama fan conversations. You know, Bear, Saban, blah, 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 right? So you have these, all these great conversations. Then, a few days go by, and you encounter this person out. They don't know you. They don't see you, but you see them. Uh, they're at, I don't know, Buffalo Wild Wings, right? And they're watching. But you see what they're doing. They're watching football, but they're watching the Auburn game, which is fine. You do that, too. But they're wearing an Auburn sweatshirt. Not only are they wearing an Auburn sweatshirt, they seem to be cheering for that team. And it's suspicious. And you go, oh, I thought you said you were an Alabama fan. That's weird. I just thought you were an Alabama fan. Like, oh, no, I am an Alabama fan, for sure. An Alabama fan. Just here with some friends and hanging out, and yes, yeah. I don't mind. So, oh. All right. That's weird. You encounter them a few weeks later. They're at a game. You see them. And they're, again, all decked out, head to toe. Bo Jackson jersey, the whole bit. And they're cheering again. And you're like, what, dude, I, what's a, it's a two, this, once, this is weird, right? And you're getting ready to call Kay Ivy because this has got to be a violation of the Alabama state constitution. Someone professing to be an Alabama fan while cheering for Auburn, it's weird, gross. And you say, you know what, I'm going I'm I'm to wait, because the real test is coming up. It's the Iron Bowl. And you show up, you see them, uh, the, the, the Saturday of the Iron Bowl, and you see them, and sure enough, even, you see them pointing, like, yes, I, the day before, yep, came tomorrow, so excited, Bama's going to win. And you show up to the game, and they're there in all Auburn gear cheering for Auburn. And you say to them, what, what's going on? And you're like, it doesn't matter what I do, inside I'm a Bama fan. Does that fly? Of course not. Listen, this is actually good news. You can't divorce who you are on the inside and what you do. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a body, mind, soul, strength complex that God has made. And he's knit you together in this amazing, amazing way. And he is not just coming back. He's not just going to save your soul. He is going to redeem your body. He is going to redeem all that is good in creation. He's going to make it all new again. It is good news that the physical world is valued and loved by God. You cannot disconnect who you are inside and what you do. What you believe, what you do, does a couple of things. It reveals. What you do reveals what you believe. It it reveals uh, what you love. It reveals and therefore reveals what you're giving yourself to. Right? If I look at my life, it's pretty easy to trace, if you watch it, what I love and what I give myself to. Not only does what we do reveal, it, it actually also shapes uh it changes us what we give ourselves to begins to mold us in its image says here he says that you have the seed the children of god have the seed of god and it abides in them what you love shapes you What you're giving yourself to shapes you. And that's what determines what you do. But a snapshot doesn't work. Here's what I mean. Look, I think we just want to look in life. You just can't necessarily look at at, at one person's life at one place and make assumptions about 
whether, where they are. And here's, here's what I mean. Some of us were given a head start on looking like we act right. I was given a head start on looking like I acted right. Have any of you ever been dragged out of church for a second spanking because you were still crying from the first? I was. That gives you a real good head start on looking like you act right, right? Like you know the Bible verses, you know the, you win Bible sword drills, right? You, like you know the things, right? It gives you a head start on looking right. But if you took a snapshot mid to late 90s of my life, I don't know that you'd find a whole lot of righteousness. Not a whole lot that looked like righteousness. Those years were lean. They were narrow rings in this tree. Maybe John isn't saying that you have to go and every time, every time you find a sin in your life, that, that means you're a child of the devil. He isn't being like, he's not like, uh, like yeah, liar, that dress did make your wife look fat. Uh, uh, child of the devil. Like he's not doing that. Like uh, second piece of cheesecake, mm, glutton, uh, uh, child of the devil. Uh, oh, yeah, get mad and mm, full of anger. No, he's not, it's not that. It's not like every time you find this little thing, you, uh, I'm a child of the devil, I have to start over from, it's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that there is a trajectory. There's something growing in your heart. And that you are growing into one thing or another. And on an eternal scale, what that basically is, is heaven or hell. Second C.S. Lewis quote. First one you hadn't heard before. This one is a favorite. I use it all the time, but you know what? It helps me, so I'm going to use it again. Lewis wrote this in an essay called The Weight of Glory. He said this. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as if you now met, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours but the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. There is something inside of us and what we give ourselves to is the determining whether it is to God as children of God or to, through Christ and by faith in him or to anything else that is determining our eternal destinies. Being shaped by something. If you believe, Christians cannot cherish sin. If you believe that he's coming back, that he's going to appear again, then we can never again be flippant about sin. Not if the sinless one is returning. But neither can we be crushed by it. Because another has paid the price for us. 
And we, we live here in this tension. And this is, this is why, John, because like you read, I, I read this, this section, chapter three, verses four through 10. And I'm like, could you have put this in a different letter? Like not the one about assurance? Like how does this fall under assurance? And here's how it falls under assurance. You can be certain by looking at your life and what you give your heart to, whether or not you belong to God. Here's what I mean. When a Christian sins, when we sin, we discover sin in our life. We don't dismiss it. We aren't flipping about it. We go to God, we repent and confess and know that he's just and faithful to forgive. We don't hide, we don't run, maybe for a little while, like mid to late 90s. We don't typically though, we don't run and hide away from it, but we run to Christ, knowing that we have an advocate with the Father. Neither do, we don't treat it flippantly, we are aware of it. Neither do we sit around and beat ourselves up pretending like Christ didn't die on the cross. Like he didn't say it is finished, the debt has been paid, it's no longer yours, it's mine. You no longer get to live underneath the weight of it. We live between those two ditches or like me, sometimes between the two ditches but a lot of times trying to get out of those two ditches. That, those are the guardrails that we operate in between. And here's how we do it. Three, one. See, behold, what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Here's how you deal with that. Here's how you work through this. Here's why this is such good news. It doesn't matter where you are. There's a God who longs for you to know him. He knows you, longs for you to know him, longs for you to give his life to him, longs to pour his life into you. And as we live this life, here's what we know. Here's what we do. We take this reality, this truth, we take this image of the cross and you apply it to your life every single day. It is at the cross that you see how serious sin is. That's what your sin cost. That's what my sin cost. That the God of all creation will become flesh and die on a cross. That's how gross our sin is. That's how serious God takes sin. That's how serious it is. And at the exact same time, at the exact same time, that's how deeply loved you are. And we take those realities and we apply them to our heart every minute of every day. That's how we stay between the ditches. That is how we are not flippant about sin, neither are we crushed by it. Because of the cross. Not just a one-time event that we acknowledge mentally. It is a living out an application of that every single day. Behold, you are what God says you are. He has declared what you are. And through faith in Jesus Christ, what you can be, what you are is a child of the king. A child of the king. Can't get over it. What kind of love is this? When we give our lives to Christ, he fills us with life. He doesn't try to consume us and absorb us, but desires to just give his eternal life, pour that into us so that we can now live lives of great freedom in response to the love that we have in Jesus. What a beautiful gift. Let's pray. Father, what a gift. (laughs) Even in these words, Uh, that have given me, honestly, nightmares at times. But in these words, there's great hope. There's great hope. 
that I don't live underneath the burden of my sin, but also the sin that corrupts, the evil that breaks and hurts and harms others, pollutes my heart and my thinking. Ugh. It doesn't crush me. It can't crush me because it crushed another. Hmm. But also, do not let sin live in us. Hmm. Root it out. The unbelief, the lack of trust, the anger, the malice, the fear. May we be overwhelmed by the beauty, the reality of becoming children of God. May that be the reality, that the trajectory of our life, the trajectory of our eternity. How amazing that we are called children of God and that is what we are. We have faith, increase our faith. Come, Lord Jesus, come soon and very soon. In Jesus' name, amen.